mesmo sentido. Hassan, thank you very much for coming onto the program. Thank you, William. The pleasure is all mine. So, of course, the big news of late is the fact that in late September, Egypt announced that elections are set to take place in December. And on Monday, the 3rd of October, the incumbent president, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, announced that he's going to be running for a third term. He's already served two terms in power. However, those were both four-year terms. And in 2019, of course, there was a constitutional referendum to change terms to six. So this paves the way for him to be in power up until at least 2013. And looking ahead to December, many are wondering, is the election a foregone conclusion? Should we expect that CC will win comfortably? Uh, th there won't be any surprises. Um, his victory, like victory between quotes, is is more than assured and it's almost certain. Um, and it's not because that he is widely popular. Uh, there is room to argue that back in 2014, when the counter-revolution was... Uh, in its initial uh, uh, phase, he did enjoy uh, uh, wide popularity at the time uh, for a list of reasons that we can go into uh, uh, later in the show. Um, but at the moment, his popularity is almost below zero. Um, over the past decade, CEC uh, has created um, a new regime. Uh, the counter-revolution did not restore the old order uh, of Hosni Mubarak. And he created essentially a new ruling class, which is composed almost exclusively of the military generals and the uh, directors of the security services, whether they are the police or the GIS. The GIS is like our version of the CIA, the General Intelligence uh, Service. Um, so he did not build any sort of political constituency. He did not opt to build a wide class alliance that can support his project. And we simply don't have a social contract in the country. The, uh, the regime of Abdel Fattah Sisi is uh, ruling solely by coercion uh, and has been ruling by coercion. So, but he will still win uh, in the election because simply he runs the state apparatus. Um, so the government ministries and the other civil service uh, uh, institution will mobilize uh, the workers and the civil servants, whether it's uh, by the carrot or the stick, they will bust them in literally uh, into the polling stations to vote for Sisi. And as for the opposition candidates, um, um, they will—they are already under siege. Um, maybe I should explain this to your listeners um, about the Egyptian electoral system. Not anyone can run. I mean, if if you, for example, William, you know, you're an Egyptian citizen and you know you have a program and you want to run an election, you can't just declare that you know I'm running an election. There is a rule or like there are a set of rules that have been tailored to make this process 
extremely difficult, um, if not impossible on occasions. So in order to be eligible for running, you either have to get 20 endorsements of uh, from the members of the parliament who are overwhelmingly dominated by this uh, political party that's run by the security services called Mustaqbal Watan or uh, Nation's Future. Or you have to get 25,000 endorsements, registered endorsements, that citizens have to walk to the civil registrar office in their local neighborhood, and they uh, officially uh, endorse your candidacy. Um, you have to get 25,000, and including um, um, at least 15 provinces, and each province, you have to get at least 1,000 endorsement in it. So this algorithm, basically, of, of the process, it makes it almost impossible. Yeah. Really, also because that, you know, citizens, for example, over the past week have been queuing in front of the civil registrar. And once they sense that these are pro-opposition, they would simply tell them the system is down. Computers are down. We have power cuts now. Or they would stall the process so that, you know, for an entire day, only two endorsements would come out. Although there had been dozens, for example, queuing. And on other occasions, they can send in plain clothes thugs in order to attack and intimidate uh, uh, the opposition supporters to make it very difficult for them to get these endorsements. So even if you manage to get those endorsements, I, I don't think that anyone stands really a chance. Now, should the opposition contest then the election or not? That's a different question. Um, because there has been, um, I mean, as always, there are like, you know, a variety of views among the dissident community. Uh, there are those who tell you, straightforward from the start that we have to boycott the elections. We're not going to take part in this charade, which, you know, I, I totally respect this view. But when you look at Egypt, um, you don't boycott the election except if there is an alternative. Like, for example, if this was at the height of the revolution yeah. and, and there are like some election, you can say like, you know, screw the election. We're going to have like a general strike for example, or, you know, screw, you know, I mean, uh, these elections that are being conducted by the military, we're going to have a one million person march, for example, in Tahrir Square and do this or do that. But we are going through the most difficult period in, in the history of modern Egypt without any exaggeration. We've never had it that bad. Um, I want to I want to ask a question about about how we got here because I think what you're saying now to let's say an occasionally interested onlooker in Egyptian politics might sound like an overstatement because if you look at the 2011 revolution and all of the high hopes that were carried there and the possibility for expanding democratic space that many had and you look at Egypt now, 
I think a lot of people would, would do a double take and sort of wonder how did this happen? So I'm curious to hear your recollection and account of the 2013 counter-revolution when CC took power, because as you were acknowledging a few moments ago, at that time, he did have some modicum of support. And in fact, he even had support from quarters of the official Egyptian left who at the time looked at Sisi as a lesser evil to the political Islam that was represented by Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. So could you walk us back to how that counter-revolution happened and how Sisi was able to successfully instantiate his tentacles into every corner of the Egyptian state and, and maintain his grip of, of power. When the revolution broke out in January 2011, this was the, in a way, it was the climax of, of a long process where social dissent had been brewing since the year 2000. Like it, it took an entire decade uh, to reach this. Uh, moment. But then when the revolution broke out, the problem is that, yes, I mean, spontaneity cannot sustain the revolution. And when the uprising started, the, the activist networks and the activist groups and the independent trade unions, in addition to the revolutionary parties, were not mature enough and were not solid enough uh, and did not have the necessary base on the ground to ensure that it continues. So there was always a huge vacuum that could be filled either by uh, reformist parties or by parties that uh, supported the return to the old order and what have you. Now, Revolutions are a very exceptional moment in, in any nation's lives. There isn't a nation that's in a state of a continuous revolution, while other nations are would never witness, for example, a revolution. Um, these are always very exceptional moments because I sometimes speak with um, fellow comrades in the global north, and they have this very romantic, image about the global south you know that's where revolutions happen and uh, that's where because people are so oppressed and democracy cannot deliver so that's like the real struggle well i tell them when was the last time egypt witnessed a revolution before 2011 it was in 1919 you know like one century uh, before it yes we did have you know uh, rising waves of social struggles here and there but to talk about a proper revolution, you know, it was 1919, a century uh, before it. So if you do not settle the revolution in favor of a new order, the masses are not going to be behind you forever. You know, we are human beings. And the idea that people are walking around with the revolutionary, you know, I mean, it's, it's always a minority of revolutionary intellectuals and revolutionary activists uh, around them. But the average person on the ground, the average worker, the average farmer, the average civil servant, the average uh, uh, middle-class uh, uh, person 
at the end of the day, when they rebel, you know, this means you are in a revolutionary situation because you're not in a minority uh, any longer. I mean, if the revolutionaries are, are in a majority, we will never be in a majority except when revolutions actually happen. Because if, if we are in the majority, then this means that, you know, there is a revolution and, you know, it's, it's going according to our vision. Mm. But we don't stay in that position for long. If we do not offer a quick settling for this revolt, and I mean by a quick settling that we would be organized enough to rid the country of the old regime, of the old capitalist order, and present some concrete alternative, the masses will start like looking for other alternatives that will bring them back stability. No one mm. can live in a in an unstable, you know, moment for long, and no one wants to live in a jungle. Add to that the factor this that the military and the old order or the counter-revolutionary forces were whipping up fear psychosis among the population regarding the terror threat, regarding uh, uh, possible in, foreign invasions. Um, the amount of rumors and smearing that they were doing on a daily basis about like foreign conspiracies to bring down the country this was going up this was going up and and people were tired after three years of revolt hence sections of the middle class but it's not only the middle class because the counter-revolutionary mobilization did include independent trade unionists and leftists as you said earlier in addition to sections of the working class and the urban poor, they were promised stability. They were tired. They were promised stability. They were promised also um, economic prosperity, and CC was putting forward all of these rosy uh, uh, promises in, in the beginning. Add to that the year where the Muslim Brotherhood ruled the country, they were not really that successful. They did not stop the neoliberal program. They did not uh, achieve the goals of the revolution in terms of cleansing the state apparatus of the old order. They did not hold the police or the military accountable for their crimes during the uprising, let alone in the previous three decades under Mubarak. So the military was able to ride the wave of discontent and present itself as a new military that had nothing to do with the massacres of 2011 and that, you know, we will take Egypt to a different uh, stage now, a stage of stability, a stage of economic prosperity. And people believed the military because they were desperate at the time. And people like myself and others who were on the revolutionary left who were anti-military, as much as we grew... In, during the revolt, we were still not big enough to influence the overall public discourse. So during, for example, the mobilizations that, that were called for against Morsi on the 30th of June 2013, uh, Morsi, I mean here Mohammed Morsi, who is the former uh, president of Egypt, he, who was elected in a democratically, uh, uh, in a democratically conducted elections in 2012. So when the mobilizations uh, started against him, at the time we tried to put a third alternative 
that mm-hmm. that trace slogans against the Muslim Brotherhood and against the military at the time. But we were too marginal in this wave of or, or this ocean of of reaction, this ocean of counter-revolution. We were mobbed in every single square that we tried to raise banners at the time that denounced the military and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, at, at the time. So Sisi managed to ride this wave, and then he unleashed um, a bloodbath. The, these are the biggest massacres in the history of modern Egypt, literally. We, we, we never had massacres on that scale. Uh, including the most notorious one is, of course, uh, the Rabah massacre on the 14th of August, where the security forces and the military killed roughly 1,000 protesters at least. Um, and at the time, many on the left cheered those uh, uh, massacres, and they shamelessly supported CC. Now, why is that? This is not a moral dilemma as much as it is an ideological and political dilemma. Um, mm. Because, you know, some people say, like, you know, how, how could you, like, you know, I mean, support these massacres, you know, you're not human beings, blah, blah, blah. And I understand, you know, definitely the humanist side in any person should feel disgusted, you know, by, by such uh, atrocities. But the Egyptian left, historically, has belonged to the Stalinist tradition that regarded the Islamists overall, as one block, as fascists. Mm. So if they are fascists, of course, you know, you would support nuking them, not just uh, uh, like arresting them or cracking down upon them. You know, if, if you hear that there are neo-Nazis in some building, I wouldn't care really, you know, if the government goes and drops a bomb, you know, I mean, on them at the end of the day, because there isn't anything that's much more uh, uh, evil than the threat of fascism uh, in the world, but this is this is bad politics. This is not correct analysis of the movement. I'm not saying here that the Islamists are progressive. I, I'm not trying to defend them, and I'm not saying that you know they are enlightened or this or that. But I'm saying that this movement is much more complicated, and while some elements in it may echo the fascist ideology, but they are not a fascist organization. Hence, you cannot side with the state in its crackdown upon them. Because mm. simply after they crack down upon them, you know, the CC turned his back to, to the leftists and to the secular forces. And it was only a matter of time before the same level of repression was unleashed against all the forces that were part of this revolution. And he managed to stifle it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where where is the Egyptian left now and civil society more generally? Of course, Sisi's regime is one of spectacular coercion and repression, and the space for dissent is very little, if entirely non-existent. I'm wondering, we were speaking earlier about what the appropriate strategy and attitude toward this election is. Some saying it's a fait company, so the only response is to boycott. And you were saying earlier that if it's the only mechanism available, then it's perhaps something worth engaging in. It seems like the only candidate who is offering somewhat of an alternative 
to Sisi is the former parliamentarian, parliamentarian with the Nasserist Karama Party, Ahmed Tantawi. Can you tell me a little bit more about him and his campaign? And of course, the odds are stacked against him. And he only returned to Egypt, I think, this year after being in brief exile in Lebanon. So, you know, what what hope is there for, for his candidacy? And is, is the point necessarily maybe not to win, but at least to cling on to what little democratic space there is and to defend it? Regarding your first question, what happened to the Egyptian left? Uh, the Egyptian left has been crushed, like all other forces after the coup. Um, we did not face, of course, the same um, level of massacres as the Islamists uh, had faced, whether the reformist Islamists or the radicals. But in, in our case, we were subject to uh, severe crackdowns. Um, many of our activists and organizers have been sent to jail. Um, and the problem also, William, um, revolutions do not simply die by one blow or one knockout. And the same goes for social movements. Demoralization yeah. is the biggest enemy, not necessarily repression. I know that they are related, but demoralization is, is much more dangerous than repression. In 2011, you could see, you could get men or women who would brave the bullets and, and run, you know, towards the security forces knowing that they could die at any moment. But they had hope. They knew that, you know, if, if I died, then my fellow comrades, my children, my family, they, they might have a better future. So it's worth the sacrifice. But once the coup happened and then the massacres started and day by day it became obvious that we're not going anywhere um, in terms of our revolutionary hopes, that's when demoralization started sipping into our ranks and the organizations did, were not just crushed by the state, but they, were, they also degenerated from within. To give you a concrete example, let's say that you know, X area had a revolutionary committee where there were five uh, activists who used to meet once a week and to organize for whatever you know, is going to happen the following week to read together, you know, to political education, to do work in the neighborhood and what have you. Now, the following week, only four people would show up. The following week, three people would show up. Then the following week, two people would show up. And then you would start like calling everybody, you know, trying to encourage them and boost their morale, you know, that the fight is still on and we can do this, we can do that, you know. So the following week, maybe three or four would show up. But then, you know, it, it goes down to two, one, and then it fades away. These people never came up to your face and told you, I'm resigning from your revolutionary organization, you know, and here is my resignation because I disagree with this or disagree with that. But simply they lost hope. 
And this is what crumbles also armies during wars. You know, once the the feeling of defeat, you know, starts sipping in that we're not going to win this war, that's when you start getting desertions, you know, in a very quiet manner and sometimes en masse. Um, so in 2023, a decade of revolution, most of the independent unions have been crushed or degenerated. Most of the activist groups um, have gone also or degenerated. You still have some leftist presence that's among we call the official left or the government-sanctioned left, mm. you know. So you have, for example, the Tagamo party, which is this left-wing legal party that includes uh, former Egyptian Communist Party members uh, and you know people from the old left, and they have declared they supported Sisi in in the coup in 2014. Uh, sorry, in 2013 they supported his candidacy in 2014. And they declared just a um, couple of days ago that they would support CC in this election yeah. because he's fighting terrorism and he's, you know, fighting the Muslim Brotherhood and what have you. Um, you have the Egyptian Social Democratic Party whose head, Farid Zahran, had announced that he's going to run an election. But unfortunately, the same party, it formed the coup uh, uh, government back in 2013 and it is this government that oversaw the massacres uh, uh, that happened after the coup and they were among uh, the parties that basically called on the regime to go and massacre the protesters in Rabah in an infamous statement that was signed by all of the left-wing organizations in the country except mine which is the Egyptian Revolutionary Socialists uh, that was titled at the time, Ayn al-Fadd, where is the suspension? Where they were calling on the government, you promised us the suspension, where is the suspension? How come you let those fascists, you know, uh, gather in those squares and blah, 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 and this and that. Um, Farid Zahran announced that he's running, but we all know that this is happening with a green light, actually, from the regime uh, to do so. And Farid did not seek to collect endorsements from the masses. Instead, he went to the parliament and got, you know, 20 signatures from 20 MPs uh, uh, over there. And most probably he's the kosher, he's the halal, you know, I mean, candidate that, you know, will end up, uh, you know, versus CC in the final round. Uh, I, I expect, you know, something like that. Um, now, regarding Tantawi, Tantawi is a different story, and I'm, I'm actually one of uh, those who endorse his campaign uh, at this point. Tantawi is an Nasserist. He's got controversial views and things that, you know, a progressive like myself actually would strongly disagree with. Um, I, uh, I mean, as much as I respect, you know, my, my fellow friends in the Nasserist movement in Egypt, you know, we have so many disagreements over all sorts of issues. But at the same time, the point here is not that Tantawi will win or not. I know that he's not going to win. And I am sure that he knows well that he's not going to win. But in the current situation, William, where he not realize a strike, 
you cannot mobilize a march in the streets. You cannot have a, a clean student union elections where you cannot uh, even... Uh, Back when we were students, we used to, um, the way Egyptian students uh, operate, the activists, I mean, is through ma'arid exhibitions that we would put all of these articles on the wall or on the ground. And then we would start shouting and, you know, making um, um, a small play or chanting some song, you know, that so that... Uh, uh, fellow students would come and they would start like, you know, reading our articles and then we would get into a conversation. It's That's how we were groomed to be the future politicians. You don't have this any longer. For 10 years, the campuses have been pacified by the security forces uh, uh, storming them in order to kill students in broad daylight uh, uh, on the campus, something that never happened under Mubarak. Uh, yeah. For, for all of his uh, repression. So in that atmosphere, to have Tantawi's campaign mobilizing on a very modest and very marginal even level, but that you can gather 50 people in front of the civil registrar and chant, is to have someone who actually is telling the emperor that he's naked even mm -hmm. if he is a little kid. It's this kind of movements or, or initiatives that can start throwing the rock into still water. Mm -hmm. And it is in that context that I support Al-Tawi and, and those on the radical left, even with all the disagreements we have with the Nasserists, we do support uh, uh, his campaign. Mm. It does seem like Egypt is on a knife's edge because on the one hand you have an escalating economic crisis that has been ongoing for a while now where the price of basic commodities is surging and affecting access to wheat to cooking oil to petroleum and life is just getting hard for people the cost of living is skyrocketing you have that on the one hand and then you have, on the other hand, this spectacular scale of repression that you're describing, which seems to have hitherto not existed, not even under Mubarak. And Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is leading this onslaught against not only democratic space, but just simple public space, you know, spaces where people can gather and commune and chat, um, and I'm sure that has a tremendous bearing on, on people's not only sort of physical health, but also mental health. And all the while, he's still sort of projecting a very triumphant posture. I mean, when he announced his candidacy, I want to pull up the quotes. Um, he had this bizarre set of remarks where he basically said to Egyptians, if the next period is going to be painful and you're going to suffer, be prepared for the suffering. This is what he said. He said, uh, listen, if the price of building, development and progress is hunger and deprivation, don't you dare not progress, Egyptians. Don't you dare say it's better that we eat. By God Almighty, if the price of the nation's progressing and prospering is that it doesn't eat and drink as others do, then we won't eat and drink. And after he said this, there were some isolated sort of 
protests, basically, or at least gatherings in, in opposition and outrage. So I'm just wondering how this sort of cocktail of, of factors, what does this mean for Egyptian society in, in the coming period? Is a powder keg brewing? Might it burst? Or do you think that CC has consolidated the security state enough that any kind of discontent can't be expressed anymore? By 2018, uh, CC had already consolidated his regime and and extended his firm grip on all the uh, security services and the entire repressive apparatus. Because before 2018, there were still some dissent even within the ranks of the security services. They were not Democrats, but they were people who thought that we should go back to the old authoritarian formula of Hosni Mubarak, mm. where the army rules but does not govern on a daily basis, where you allow some space for the civilian institutions uh, uh, to function, where you outsource policing to civil society. Civil society here, I mean it in the Gramscian sense, mm. not, not like just NGOs, meaning why send in the troops to quell strikes when you have a state-backed union bureaucrats who can basically sabotage it without the need for the state to intervene with its repressive apparatus? Why um, smear the Palestinian cause and uh, smash any attempt at organizing in solidarity with Palestine when you used to have the Muslim Brotherhood in the past, that the security services can allow to have protests inside the mosques and on university campuses to diffuse the anger, and these protests would never spill out on the streets, they would never chant against Mubarak. So under Mubarak, even when he was an autocrat, but there was a vibrant civil society that he can negotiate with and outsource policing uh, with. You know, William, like in, in the same manner that um, this is something that I see in Western countries that does not exist in Egypt, when you apply for a license, you know, to the police to have a protest. And, right. and after you apply for this license, then there would be, let's say, five or six people who would wear like yellow vests and they are the organizers and they are the ones in charge of honoring the agreement with the police. So they are the ones who are like policing, you know, I mean, the protest to start with, you know, so the police doesn't really have to intervene from the start to squash it, for example. So in a way, we used to have these yellow vests in the metaphorical sense mm. among the political scene in Egypt before 2011. But Sisi, after 2013, he and his generals actually saw that Mubarak was too lenient. And it is that formula of Hosni Mubarak that led to the catastrophe. Of and we don't need the civil society. We will crush it. We will dismantle it completely. And we will get the repressive apparatus to run and micromanage society on a daily basis. So at this point, you do have civilian ministers, for example, but they are worthless. They are not empowered in any sense. 
you know, everyone knows that they are just a bunch of clowns. That mm. in every ministry, in every government office, there is some retired general who is like running the show. Mm. And this is a completely a parallel chain of command that's like managing the state. CC is militarizing the state organs. Just another also, I mean, example that maybe your listeners would like to know. Um, uh, teachers who want to, uh, who are applying for uh, jobs with the Ministry of Education, they have to go to a six months ideological indoctrination boot camp at the Egyptian Military Academy where they do physical, you know, uh, training as if they are soldiers. They all get dressed in the same uniforms and then they get indoctrinated, you know, for days and weeks on all of these conspiracy theories about how, you know, foreign powers are trying like to bring down the regime from within and uh, things that would vilify uh, uh, the opposition and the NGOs and the human rights activists and what have you. And then it is that test that would uh, uh, basically uh, uh, be their gateway, whether they would get an education job or not. The same is happening with the transport workers. He's militarizing the transport sector. The same is happening with the preachers. You know, we have a ministry in Egypt called the Ministry of Religious Endowments, the Awqaf. And they run the religious establishment, the official religious establishment. They are the ones who would send the imams to the mosques, for example, to do the Friday ceremonies. They are the ones who would conduct religious teachings, you know, here and there. The imams, they do get sent to the Reserve Officers College in Ismailia by the Suez Canal for the same boot camp for six months. So as you can see, like the guy, he, he does not trust civilians, which is, you know, I mean, a common culture among uh, the military in Egypt. And I would say actually among the whole world, you know, they get conditioned that you know civilians are lazy they are not disciplined enough you know it's like the military and it's discipline who get things done and and what have you mm-hmm. so at this point yes he did crush dissent there is no question about this he dismantled all of the activist organizations he besieged and and almost destroyed most of the dissident political parties the Islamists are gone. You know, he, he, I mean, Islamists in Egypt are either in prison or in exile or, you know, they are dead. Um, uh, they definitely face the lion's share of the wrath uh, of the state. So do we get any social dissent in Egypt? We do. And usually it takes the form of like spontaneous wildcat strikes here and there, spontaneous protests against the demolition of homes, um, anti-gentrification fights. These have been happening in the previous years. I'm not saying that they disappeared completely. There isn't a good tally or like a statistic about... um, the level of struggle. I mean, before 2011 and during the revolution, yes, we we could count them. And we could even predict the future, at least the short-term future, that, you know, I could be speaking to you now, William, and tell you that next week 
keep an eye on Mahalla. There will be strikes over there. But why is that? It was because there were networks on the ground at the time that mm-hmm. used to give me and fellow activists, you know, the pulse of what the pulse is like, you know. Mm-hmm. So we would know that if we call for a general strike now, it's not going to happen. You know, we're like, the street is not ready or our level of organization is not ready. Or we can tell you that, you know, in that province, there will be social explosions coming up because we were connected to people on the ground. At this point, all of our networks have been dismantled. Yes, we 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 still have activists in the country, but we are not as connected as we were before 2013. Right. So we could be speaking now and tomorrow, you know, an explosion might happen in Egypt. I mean, a social explosion. And we would, uh, I mean, I wouldn't know um, the midst of this. Can this happen? Yes, it can happen. We've seen glimpses uh, uh, of it. Um, Whenever people feel that there might be a chance that, you know, maybe, you know, CC can go if we just, you know, do this or do that. Because there were attempts at having mass protests that kind of like managed to pull it together in September 2019 and September 2020 mm. on those two years. Um, so after CC, for example, as you said earlier, announced that he's running an election. So the nation's future party, Mustaqbal Watan, which is this, you know, political party that has the majority in the parliament, and they are run by the security services. They, of course, mobilized all of these, you know, marches in support of Sisi. In Marsa Matruh, which is on the borders with Libya, uh, the videos, you know, I mean, came out. Uh, the nation's future guys, you know, were having this event. And they started chanting, you know, uh, like, you know, CC, uh, you know, proceed on with the march. And then people started saying, you know, no, no, no. So and then they start chanting, long live Egypt. And people were saying, no, no, no. And <laughs> it was, uh, you know, this scene with Ceausescu and how he fell in Romania. <laughs> it was like the first thing that came to my mind, you know, like he called for a mass protest to support him. And then. <laughs> One started booing, and then everyone, you know, started booing, and the whole thing backfired. <laughs> so this happened in Marsa Matruh. Now, obviously, the state went in. They arrested 400 people, uh, um, uh, according to the reports that we've read. But it shows you that, you know, something might happen. We don't know where the trigger is going to come from. Mm. We don't know. We don't know if we can sustain it. That's another thing. Because spontaneous explosions could happen, and they have always been happening. But the difference between now and in 2011, that there were opposition parties and and activist organizations that could sustain the mobilization and could change or translate this spontaneous movement into an articulated program. That's why whenever any spontaneous protests happen in Egypt, you know, people always like get puzzled. Why did the security services arrest like, you know, ex-activist or Y-activist or this lawyer or that, although they were not involved? 
you know, yeah. but simply they go after the veteran activists who are not affiliated with these spontaneous protests because they know that it's those activists who can actually translate these like, you know, spontaneous movements on the ground into a concrete alternative to the regime. Mm-hmm. This is also interesting because it, it makes me wonder, we're talking about the sustainability of oppositional and dissident action and where the spark for a broader social explosion might come from. I wonder if there might also be some glimmers of discontent from the ruling class itself, because it seems like Sisi's formula for power doesn't have a lot of longevity, as you were establishing in the beginning. He hasn't tried to orchestrate some kind of social contract. He doesn't have any real constituency other than his fellow military generals. And so it seems like the strategy or formula for compliance at the moment is just brute coercion. And I imagine some kind of incorporation into the regime by sharing in the looting that everyone is is no doubt participating in. But that seems like it's going to be increasingly unviable, especially if you think of, you know, CC's economic policy or lack thereof, which has basically been to hand over the levers of the economy to the military junta. Um, at the moment, as Egypt is going through this economic hardship, you know, the state has announced plans to privatize state-owned companies, most of them which were owned and controlled by the military. And this is an initiative that's in large part influenced by the IMF, which feels like it's something that could undercut the vitality of his military state, because if people can no longer benefit from the economy um, and being on the inside of it, then, you know, what incentive do they have to continue participating in the regime? So so I'm wondering at this point, what is what is the incentive for for the ruling class and, and insiders in that ruling class to, to back and support Sisi, um, especially as he's now sort of seems to be stumbling along, kind of making economic blunder after economic blunder um, which I'm sure humiliates um, humiliates Egypt, humiliates the ruling class. And in there, I want to ask you a question of exactly who that ruling class is outside of the junta. Excellent question. I mean, I, I was as I was listening to you, um, the thing that came to my mind is, well, first we must define who are the ruling class in Egypt. Uh, and at this point, they are different from the ruling class that existed under Mubarak. Um, usually, um, people were, would be quick to point to the capitalists and to the, bourgeois, to the big bourgeoisie as, uh, and the big businessmen to be the ruling class. And the military is just um, um, a tool of repression you know, to further uh, their interests. But in Egypt, it's not... Um, it's not that simple. Until 2011 or until 2013, when the coup happened, you did have a new liberal elite uh, of uh, billionaires who were organized uh, in the upper echelons of the ruling National Democratic Party at the time. And they, they surrounded Gamal Mubarak, 
the son of Hosni Mubarak, who was being groomed for succession. The, ru uh, the ruling class included military generals. They were part of it, but they were not in, they did not have the upper hand. Um, there were police generals uh, in it. it. It was diverse. There were, let's say, uh, senior uh, foreign ministry diplomats, senior civil servants were part of it, ministers. So the ruling class in Egypt until 2013, there was diversity uh, in it. But after 2013, and although initially people were uh, in, on the left were saying, oh, now we're back to neoliberalism and now we're back to, um, uh, uh, to the rule of capital and uh, those who were friends of Gamal Mubarak are now back. That's not true. Actually, Sisi was hostile to the big bourgeoisie. If you, for example, follow the... Um, the statements of our Egyptian Rockefeller, you know, Nagib Sawiris, who is like probably the richest or the second richest man in the country after his brother. Um, he went on the record on at least two or three occasions over the past decade where he complained. He complained that, you know, the army is like squeezing us out of the economy. The army is competing with us. And that's not fair. Uh, the army should return to the barracks and leave the economy to the civilians. In, in case your listeners did not know, like by law in Egypt, the Egyptian military does not pay taxes, um, does not pay uh, tariffs, you know, or customs or, or anything. And in Egypt, we have compulsory uh, conscription, which ranges from one year to three years. And... So this means that they have almost a cheap pool of, of labor, uh, slaves that they can, you know, work in their companies. So for a capitalist, if you're a civilian capitalist, it's an unfair competition. Even like, you know, by the rules of capitalism, they are twisting the, the free market forces. There is no invisible hand. There is only the iron fist, you know, of the military in that, uh, in, 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 in that uh, formula. And of course, put alongside this, you know, the political weight of the military. I mean, in order, in order for you to breathe in Egypt, you have to get uh, permission, you know, from some ministry. You know, I'm, I'm, let alone, you know, to buy a land, to have, you know, a tower, to get uh, electricity, you know, power supply. If anything, you know, that you do in Egypt would include bureaucracy and permits. Now, I mean, if you're a civilian, do you think that you will get these permits easily? No. You have to find, actually, a contact in the military or the security services so as to facilitate your paperwork. So this means that the military does not need that facilitation if they have their own companies, you know. They can get whatever permissions just, you know, with one phone call. So it's not a fair competition. Hence, the big bourgeoisie was not... Re they were initially happy with Sisi crushing the revolution, for sure. And they all, you know, I mean, cheered him. They all went and voted for him in 2014. They, they all went and paid money 
for this uh, fund called Long Live Egypt Fund, which he has created basically to be his like pocket. You know, like if you want to do anything in Egypt, you go and pay a donation for this Long Live Egypt Fund. But then by time, his economic project started to be clear in front of them that it does not really include much uh, room. Uh, they are not part of the formula. Uh, to make things worse for them, of course, that CC started to take over by force their companies. This is different from, let's say, a left-wing populist regime, you know, nationalizing uh, big businesses, you know, for the sake of the people or whatever. But no, this is CC would go or like, you know, they would send uh, someone to a businessman, like what they did with Safe and Safwan Thabit, who ran this most famous dairy products uh, firm in Egypt. And they would tell him, here is this contract, give up your company. Uh, and he said, why should I give up my company? He said, you'll have to give it up. And when he refused, uh, simply he and his son were thrown in jail for more than a year on terror charges. They did the same with uh, the businessman who owns, like, you know, Masr Al-Yom, which was our flagship uh, 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 daily newspaper. They did that with other businessmen, even like, you know, people who used to run fast food chains, any sort of lucrative business that you can think of. At some point, they went and then they extended their control on it. So obviously, you know, I mean, they are not happy with this. And even if they were on good terms with the military, the problem also, William, is that, you know, we say always, uh, uh, you know, capital is coward. Mm. You know, capital needs stability. Uh, why would I go and invest in Egypt if I was a foreigner, for example, even knowing that this is a regime that will crush strikes, will not allow, you know, trade unions and... Uh, you know, I will not be bothered with these things. But if they screw you over in 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 any business deal, is there an independent judiciary that can hold them accountable? No. I mean, wh wh why would you invest? You know, I mean, your money in such an environment. Mm -hmm. So, so this is like in in answer to your first part of the question. Now, regarding the second part, which is much more um, uh, definitely uh, crucial for the regime survival is what are you going to do with the military firms? Now, the model that you came up with after 2013 is that, you know, the military will be the locomotive of the economy. Um, we need the military to run the economy because they are disciplined. You know, we don't we're not going to bother with all of these stupid things that civilians, you know, I mean, do. But then you flunked. You know, we woke up 10 years later to find that we have a record level of debt, only second to Argentina around the world. And we're in debt by 160 billion. Mm -hmm. Most of them were like spent on white elephant projects and infrastructure projects that are megalomaniac completely. And you could have avoided wasting all of these resources. CC likes to blame the 2011 instability, you know, for uh, 
for all the economic malaise that we're facing or sometimes it's covid sometimes it's the war in ukraine and blah 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 but at the end of the day everyone can see that it is his mismanagement of of resources now it's very easy to give children toys mm. but not easy to take these toys back you know i mean from them he gave all of these economic privileges to the military after 2013 and based on that model they gave him the unconditional support in whatever you know political endeavors that he was doing and embarking on left and right um but now the imf and the international donors are pressuring him into stopping to subvert the market the free market forces and to privatize uh those firms mm. well he, he's been doing two or three things i mean one he's simply stalling the the process um i mean for three years now he's been talking about privatization of military firms i mean nothing really concrete came out of it up until now this number one number two he would do uh, a backdoor privatization meaning that they would announce that you know they're gonna sell x firm for example to a private uh investor but then when you look at this private company that's like buying it over you will find that the military just a month before had bought like you know 20 or 30 percent of the stakes you know i mean in it so it's like you're giving it with one hand and you're taking it from the other hand you know uh the third thing and this is what i expect it's gonna be his main strategy um which he has been stalling till the elections is over but everyone i mean even a five-year-old in egypt knows that as soon as you know the election is over then the new package of austerity policies and whatever uh economic madness uh that he has been uh stalling will happen that he will privatize those um institutions or those companies but he will sell them to private investors who act as a front cover you know mm. for uh, for the different military or security services and we have we have plenty we have tons of them in egypt where you know that oh this businessman he is the front for the military intelligence oh that businessman oh yeah he's the front for the gis the general intelligence uh, service so I think that's what he's going to do. Because other than that, I don't think that uh, the military would simply be happy with him taking away, you know, all of these uh, privileges. Mm, mm, mm. I think that's right. I mean, by, by way of, of conclusion with this conversation, it, it's the picture you've painted sounds, to be honest, quite dire and hopeless, even though there are these factors bubbling under the surface which might produce something unexpected. But I suppose in preparation for that moment, that moment of spontaneous explosion that we can't predict, what might a program that is able to persuade Egyptians to a political alternative. What might that look like? Earlier you were saying that part of the problem of 2011 
is that people revolted, they overthrew the old order, but there was no sufficiently convincing vision of a new order to replace it. What might that look like? And in the interim, what do you imagine Egyptian dissidents and opposition to the regime, what, what might be the, the short-term strategy um, to, to sort of cope with, with the circumstances, but also to try and, and fight for, for the democratic space that exists outside of um, Tantawi's campaign, which we've spoken about a little bit. Uh, I'm a socialist, so for sure um, my vision for a different Egypt would be a socialist Egypt where democracy does not just extend to uh, elections and, and, and voting for someone every four or five years, but that the work floor in the factories and in the civil service and on the university campuses would also be democratized, uh, where production is democratized, where production takes place according to people's needs, not uh, for competition or capital accumulation. The vision... Um, or the Egypt I want to see is an Egypt that's run by direct democracy. And in the age of technological advancement and, and technological innovation and the internet and the telecommunication revolution, it is very easy to have this um, uh, direct democracy or the infrastructure for direct democracy where every citizen can can basically weigh in on every single thing that touches uh, his or her or their lives uh, on a daily basis. Um, the, the, the Egypt that I envision is a federal Egypt that would not necessarily have a centralized government uh, centralizing all the wealth in Cairo and in Alexandria, while the rest of the country is basically impoverished and, and marginalized. The Egypt that I wish to live in would have an ethical foreign policy that rests on empowering uh, uh, the people of uh, the neighboring countries, not fighting over them, whether on borders or water resources, would export its revolution to every possible uh, country around the world and to act as a source of inspiration for, for anyone who wants to uh, liberate uh, their country. Um, this is a vision, and, and this is a vision that I also had in 2011, and, and many of us on the left also had. But the problem was not um, that we lacked the vision as much as we lacked the organizations that could mobilize for this vision. Um, we had many ideas that were more than excellent in 2011. Some people might think of them as utopian, but they were not. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to waste my life running after a dream that's not going to happen. No, I am, I am a scientific, materialist, uh, uh, Marxist, and I, I, I'm going to live only for one life. Uh, and I don't want to surrender it uh, uh, to anybody. So for a second, if I know that socialism is a, utop is a utopian dream, I will not waste a single time uh, uh, in organizing. But I believe it's achievable. 
unfortunately, we are in a very, very bad moment in terms of political dissent in Egypt. Um, and I mean here organized political dissent. And if an explosion happens tomorrow, we will be in, in not in an easy situation for sure to influence uh, uh, the discourse that the revolt will take. Nevertheless, you know, I pray for this revolution day and night uh, to happen. On the short term, at least what I believe, um, us as, as dissidents on the left and whatever remnants that still exists from the independent trade unionists and industrial organizers, that we should have some form of a general wide alliance that we can push for and do these small fights here and there in order to create some political opening. It took us 10 years to reach 2011. I mean, 2011 was not born out of some Facebook event that you know activists made on the morning of January 25th, 2011. It was the product of continuous struggles that were happening from the year 2000, to be specific. So a few months ago, and for the first time, a leftist won the election um, uh, at the press syndicate in Egypt. Um, this is unprecedented. Uh, and the majority of the syndicate board now, they, are, they belong to the opposition. Um, at the lawyer syndicate, although it is still controlled by pro-regime figures, but there were some mobilizations by the lawyers over the past year uh, over bread and butter issues, but it included direct confrontation with the state forces and one general strike that pressured the regime into releasing some uh, of their detained colleagues. Um, the engineer syndicate, for example, there was a fight in it that managed to actually stop the takeover of the syndicate by the security services run uh, Nations Future Party uh, uh, members. It's these small fights here and there, in addition to fights like the one that we are in now, you know, with the Ahmed Tantawi campaign, that will start creating for us some momentum and some margin on the left that we can start reclaiming the streets bit by bit. Unfortunately, there is no quick solution uh, for this. Um, but I'm, I'm optimistic, and I don't believe that you know we have the luxury of being uh, uh, pessimistic. Um, our Earth is literally going on fire. Um, maybe you and I, you know, would live our lives, but you know, I'm not sure that you know the coming two generations would have air to breathe. Um, literally, at, at this point. Um, let alone all of these wars that are breaking out and the possibility of them escalating into full nuclear confrontations, the world is not a safe place. And I think that we deserve better. And I believe it does deserve uh, the risk. And as I always say, you know, the darker the night, the brighter the star. So we should always be hopeful. I couldn't think of a, of a better note to end this conversation on. And given the Gramscian spirit that has hovered in this conversation, I think a pessimism of the intellect, but an optimism of the will. Hossam, thank you very much for talking to us today.
Thank you, William. It was really my pleasure and my honor. A reminder of who I've been speaking to, I've been conversing with Hossam Al-Hamalawi, who is an Egyptian journalist and scholar activist currently based in Germany, where he received his PhD in political science from the Freie Universität Berlin, where he wrote his dissertation on the role of the security services in the 2013 Egyptian counter-revolution. He's written for numerous outlets, including Al-Masri Al-Yum, the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, NYT, Jacobin, Middle East Eye, New Arab, Al Jazeera, and others. And most importantly, he has a fantastic Substack, which publishes newsletters every week on Egyptian politics and society. All of the links to these would be included in the description. And a thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. A reminder, the Africa is a Country podcast is a weekly destination for analysis of current events, culture, and sports on the African continent and its diaspora from the left. Make sure that you listen to the show every week and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And until next week, I'll see you again. Era o mesmo sentido.